0: Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Jeff Patak, Global Director of Manager Research for Morningstar Research Services.
0: And I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance for Morningstar,
1: Inc. Our guest this week is Dan Fuss. Dan is Vice Chairman of the Loomis Sales Board of Directors and is the longtime manager of the firm's flagship Loomis Sales Bond Fund, as well as a number of other strategies. Dan is one of the most experienced bond managers in the industry today. He recently entered his seventh decade in the investment business. He's also one of the most accomplished bond managers around, racking up an excellent long-term record over his career. In recognition of this, we named Dan the Outstanding Portfolio Manager at last year's Morningstar Awards for Investing Excellence. Dan has twice served as president of the CFA Institute's Boston chapter. He earned a bachelor's and MBA from Marquette University and served in the United States Navy from 1955 to 1958. We thank Dan for his service and are pleased to have him as our guest. Dan, welcome to The Longview.
2: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: So let's start on a somewhat mundane note, your work setting. Uh, we're curious where you're doing your work, where your team is, and and how the way you, you and your team have worked together has changed over the last month or so. These are extraordinary times after all, and so I think our listeners would be curious to know how you and your team are adapting to
2: it. Uh, well, first of all, I can uh, shut off everything else here. As you can see, I'm still adapting. Uh, I'm in the basement of my home right now using a pool room as a base, an old storage and drum room for one of our sons Mm -hmm. for right now, and also upstairs when I'm not underfoot. So uh, that's the balance. And everybody else is also at home. We don't have anybody in the office or at some other than the home remote spot as far as the team I'm working with. We do have a formal meeting each morning at uh, 915 We go through each of the markets around the world and have some quick credit comments and then wrap that up. And during the day, need be, we talk to each other on a need basis. Now, that's a simplified version of how it runs. The heavy duty, the strain in it, which so far has gone very, very, very well, is with the Trading, trade execution, conversations with trading, and making sure everything is going exactly as we planned in the individual portfolios. Now, you say, well, gee, that's not that hard. Well, (laughs) let me tell you, it's a workout. So the combination of trading and what we call the portfolio assistant role, those are the troops on the front line. And that works so far, knock on wood, that is working like a charm. But the hours are long, so we have to watch that. It's not just while the market's open. It's before for an hour or so and afterwards for sometimes two to three. And that's where we're going. And then we have other people talking on the phone with clients. And then operations. And operations is obviously critical in a whole lot of areas that are hardly ever seen or recognized. And right now, they're not being seen, but they're certainly being recognized. That's the setting.
1: That's helpful. I I wanted you to reflect on your many years of experience. This has been a disorienting period. The the global economy has ground to a halt. Markets have been heaving to and fro. So, We'd welcome your perspective on what you see when you look across the economy and the bond market in this remarkable time that we find ourselves in right
2: now. Well, uh, it is extraordinary. Now, I've been doing this since 1958. I've seen some tough markets. The worst of all was actually, I'd say, from February through the end of the first week of October in 1974. That was a killer. In all the markets. But it was confined, or at least our interests at that time were confined to the US uh, and Canada. This one is very, very different. It has a few similarities to 2008, but not as many as is oftentimes referred to. You had the market volatility this time, and with a lagged effect, not very long effect on the economy. But this one is global, and the economic and physical effect is global. It is very, very, very important from a geopolitical viewpoint. And so we are dealing with new situations. And our investment portfolios, depending on the style, have also gone global over the years in countries other than our own and our own. And so the interaction between the markets around the world is noticeable, more than noticeable, extremely important. And the money flows for the time being seem to be coming very, very heavily towards the U.S. dollar and not surprisingly also towards Japanese yen. And noticeably now, just more the last day or so, started to notice it towards Canada. So there's an element here of whether or not the currency is a reserve currency. And the U.S. has the largest position, depending on how you measure, about 71% or so of the international reserves. But right now, it's the currency that everybody seems to want. And the Fed has recognized that, thank God. And they said, listen, you can sell us back your U.S. Treasuries or lend them back to us, and we'll lend you U.S. dollars. And so you can deal with your trade obligations that way. And our security for the loan is U.S. Treasuries. So that works pretty well. And the securities that are being loaned are actually producing more income, probably, than what's being charged on the repo. And it's not an overnight repo. It can run for months. So the Fed, from one view, and I think they approve of people saying this, has really become the world's central bank in some respects. And that is very, very important. Not in the newspapers, to my knowledge, but also out there I think it is possible in a few cases in the so-called third world where they have a similar arrangement with the Chinese, the Chinese central bank and the Chinese currency. They seem to be doing their very best at what is called soft diplomacy. This has been written up in the papers, but I think the financial aspects might not be quite as visible. So you have that degree of cooperation between central banks and in other respects, too, which is one of the few bright spots in this whole thing, because an overriding concern before the coronavirus was the climate change thing. And the overriding concern with that or contributing concern Side by side is the conflict that has been growing between China and the U.S. That has the political scientists very, very worried, and it's been getting the market worried, and it's another reason for some of the money flows from Asia coming into the U.S. Now, none of this has a precedent. The closest thing to it I used to hear from my parents was the flight of money from Europe to the U.S. in the 1930s. I was alive, but I wasn't following the markets at that time. So there are many aspects to this. And the last one is that liquidity can be either readily available in certain areas at the same time that it's not available at all in others geographically and sometimes within their own markets. It's a long answer. But that's how I see the world right now. The secondary impact, or most important for most people, is that the economy is getting hit hard. All economies are getting hit hard. There may be an exception here or there, but all economies are really getting hit hard. And the consequences of that are going to take quite a long time to work their way through the financial markets, particularly from a credit perspective. That's a long answer for you.
0: Your firm's outlook holds that the global economy should resume its expansion in the second half of the year. So what are the implications if we remain mired in a recession for longer than that? And how does that possibility factor into the way that you're positioning portfolios?
2: Uh, well, very importantly, <laughs> I would say our official outlook is certainly to be hoped for, um the recession is more not a V-shape, but not a very big U. So down you go very, very sharply. And then as the impact of the virus starts to pass and activity gradually returns, then we start. There's a gradual, not a complete rebound, but a gradual uptrend in the economy, more or less Similar Here you have a similarity that would be similar to what we had starting in 2009, so a gradual ascent and the markets returning to normal. That is a model. The weakness in the model, in the first place, assuming it does start, the economy starts to rebound from a low level, is how low is that level? How quickly can production, etc., be resumed, and what has changed that we don't see from the present view. In particular, what happens in reference to the bond market, what happens to the credit of companies that are dealing with declines in revenues of 25 30%, 50%, 70% as you go down the size spectrum of companies? And look in the service area, you discover you have a lot of companies that uh, really the one thing they do is ground to a halt. They're not doing it. Extreme examples being restaurants. So now they can start up right away. What will consumer trends look like? Will we immediately go back to where things were at the peak? We don't know. We doubt it. But it's possible. Uh, And. What other things will we notice? Will we ever have enough toilet paper? I certainly hope so. <laughs> the, uh, and other things like that. I look forward to eating ice cream again. Uh, <laughs> that type of thing. Now, each day that goes along with things getting worse now pushes out at what point the recovery starts. I personally think it's very, very unlikely that in the U.S. that the constraints on social distancing and so forth are the urge to social distance. I doubt if that's going to go away too soon because we're collecting anecdotal evidence now from Asia that, hey, there's a second wave to this thing. Hong Kong's a good example. Now, they, they say, no, it's all because people came home and got it rolling again. Well, that may be. Uh, but at any rate, they're dealing with a second wave. How about China? Well, we don't know for sure, but many people are suspicious of, have they really you know nipped this thing? Some countries, notably Singapore, have been very successful. Taiwan, again, to a degree you can trust the numbers, but I think that's a high degree, have been very, very successful because they got to it first. Well, okay, as things open up, people will travel from other countries. Ah, hmm, well, maybe we'll limit that. Okay, you limit that, then how far does the recovery go? The net, net of this whole thing is I think the Fed's going to have to keep things lower for longer. I think the degree of cooperation between central banks on how to handle this will continue at its current level and will go further. I think there will be international support in the weaker areas because what we don't get much data on right now are the weaker countries and the so called third world, where the risk of contagion with this virus is very, very high. And the resources available are minuscule. So uh, that's going to be a real problem. I don't see a pickup in air travel, for example, under the best circumstances. That's going to be remarkable. Certain areas will, but they'll be consumer items. So I think we have to be extra careful on our credits. And when I kibitz on the equity side, I think a lot of the earnings models for the companies in regard to the equity side and credit side are going to have to be more than tweaked. They're going to have to be amended, and yet it will not be possible for many companies to reflect in their own cost structure the situations that they face with revenues. So their revenues are going down faster than their costs. No two ways about that. And from a cash flow viewpoint, once you go negative, that's really a headache. So no wonder the new issue market is breaking records in the investment grade side, on the credit side. Even though people say the balance sheets are stretched, well, this is a good time, in effect, get the cash. And at the same time, Those who can't do that are pulling down their credit lines as fast as they can. Uh, So this is not going to be a smooth recovery. I think there are substantial bumps in the road and the uncertainty, the variable, really is how, where and how far does government support for various areas go? We have interim support here for the airlines, certainly for the defense contractors, although their orders are, are hanging in there. The banks not the same degree of leverage on the bank balance sheet, but prior to this that we had back twelve years ago, but a different loss experience on the credit side. so it's too early to relax. By background, by habit, I like to buy into severe market declines. I can understand people going forward on the equity side right now. I can even see it in the various high-grade areas if you feel the Fed's going to keep the clamps on for a long time. I think once you get into high yield, depending on the credit, there are certainly some in there that will do well and a few here and there who are going to do exceptionally well. But uh, many are going to suffer from this, and some are going to suffer a whole lot, particularly when it's combined with anything else. For example, the energy area. Some winners, some losers. If you're marginal credit going after natural gas in the Permian Basin or any other basin, you got a problem. And now with maybe the so-called oil war being over, maybe you'll come back enough to get some production of natural gas going again. But in the meantime, your revenues don't match your expenses, and so you have to do something. So there will be a lot of recapitalizations in here. I doubt if any of them will be in the major companies on the New York Stock Exchange or anything like that. But when you get into the second and third layers in most industries, you're going to have to watch out for the recapitalizations. And uh, that takes a huge research effort because each one is a time sink. And we're working on that. We're getting prepared there because some of them are going to surprise you. Liquidity, I do think, is probably going to be reasonable through this. My worry here four months ago, even three months ago, was not about this this development. It was about the leverage in the various balance sheets and, more particularly, in the markets with the three, four, five, six, seven times leverage in investment vehicles. Now some of those are coming to sad days already. Eventually, that money gets washed out of the market, and then you, you know you get a little more strength to the recovery. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll just have to we'll revisit our outlook every week and formally every month. I hope we're right, or even I hope we're too bearish on the economy, but. Right now, I think it pays to be more careful and say, well, maybe it's going to take a little while longer, thereby increasing the pressure on the earnings of corporations and individuals.
1: So have you been using this downturn as an opportunity to upgrade the quality of your holdings? You used the word cautious. and, And so I don't know if that, and I realize that you may be a bit limited in talking about Where the portfolio is currently positioned, but if you can give us a flavor for the kinds of adjustments that you've made to try to adapt to the current environment, given some of the factors that you cited in your description that you just gave to us.
2: Well, uh, let me use the Loomis-Sales Bond Fund, the largest of the fixed income funds. Perfect. Because that knowledge is public. And uh, the first quarter statement's being put to bed right now, and we'll... Soon be out there in people's hands, but you know, there are ways of looking it up and do a comparison from, say, oh, nine months ago. Uh, you could even go back a year. In fact, yeah, let's go back a year, a year and a quarter. We were increasingly coming up in quality because we were shifting more towards US treasuries. And As the year progressed, this became more apparent. And to be honest, I I was suffering some flack from this, uh, not within the firm, but exterior to the firm, and and more on the separate account side where we were doing the same thing and saying, uh, you know, how, how come? How come? What's going on here? And so we had reserves at year end in the bond fund liquid reserves. Well, you, at that time, the liquid reserves include some short-term AA corporates, but mostly U.S. Treasuries, including a few percent in the 30-year, um, as we came into this. And that increased a bit in uh, January, February. And then, then oh, wow, that that's when everything really broke loose. And So we had been afraid of this leverage in the market. And with our memories, my own, going back to 1998, when all the money left Asia and early because of will leverage, long-term capital, things like this, uh, never anticipated the virus. And so as this started to hit, and the withdrawals from the mutual funds went up, not on the separate account side, but from the mutual funds, that uh, gave us good reason to sit on our hands there when it came to doing anything. Furthermore, just a fast run-through on the credit side said, hey, we've got a problem coming here. Then, as the Fed unleashed their firepower, we decided, okay, it's pretty clear. Combine that with the pressure from what's called the overnight bid from Asia for long and 10-year call-protected investment grade. Let's get some of these while we can. Well, that was not a unique thought. And so the new issue calendar stepped way up and was met with demand that would exceed the amount of the new issues by two and three and four in one case nine times. And so that, that kept those spreads in line initially, and then the spreads started to widen because the treasury yields were going down and the bonds recently issued in the investment grade area were hanging in there at about 102. Oh, okay. So you had to ignore spreads and just look at yield and dollar price. And on that basis, there were only a few more, but we bought them and we spent some money on the below-investment-grade side in the secondary market as there were some cheap bonds being offered because of the outflows from some funds there, and more particularly from leveraged accounts who were borrowing at short-term rates to buy bonds at a much higher interest rate relative to their cost of borrowing. So that was time to pay those loans back, and they were looking for bids. And then that became very specific. It wasn't broad for very long. It was very specific. So we did increase the invested position slightly. On the other hand, we also sold some items that people were looking for. So we are still sitting there in the bond fund. At roughly 35 percent. Now we had outflows during March early on. It's turned around now, and it's going sideways. A couple big days on the inside, and uh, that's pretty much where we're at. So uh, the average quality of the portfolio, because of the treasuries and the four or five percent in the short-term high-quality corporates, is still stuck there. At about a BAA one, once in a while crossing into the single A3 territory for the bond fund, whereas normally it's a couple notches below that. The maturity structure is now much shorter. The call protection is still pretty good, but I'm getting pretty nervous about that score because where bonds are selling at 108 or above, I figure that people, even if it has a non call or a non refundable for ten years on it, people are going to start to read the prospectus with a fine tooth comb to see if there isn't some way they can call those funds at a lower price and refinance at the lower rates. Now, this is a lesson I've learned <laughs> that I learned back in the late sixties and the nineteen seventies pardon me, in the aftermath of that period, in uh, 81 down to, say, 91. That was a lesson in reading the fine print in the prospectus. So that's how we're looking at this. I cannot stress enough that uh, we are dealing with a unique situation, and we've got a lot to learn. I've learned a lot over the years, but this is a new one. It has some similarities to times in the past, but it has a lot of dissimilarities. It's bringing hope that this pressure uh, that was growing between uh, the U.S. and China, maybe this will help in that there's more reason to cooperate and there are enough voices behind that. I've been giving this as a keynote of some of my my speeches out to their two groups, mostly CFAs, but I even gave it over in Tokyo. You know, that was the overwhelming problem along with climate change. Okay, so maybe this will help there short term. It's actually helped with climate in this country, but we'll have tremendous social upheaval in areas in the third world areas. And that's going to require cooperation from the major powers who have just been hit pretty hard themselves.
1: How do you
0: rate the relative attractiveness of equity versus convertible bonds versus, say, high-yield bonds in the current climate, and why do you see it that way?
2: Okay. Um, High yield for a couple of years, quite frankly, has mostly, not all, but mostly been overpriced you can say, well, that's because the stock market was overpriced. No, not for that reason. It was just because people that had fixed income guidelines but wanted to call on the equity wanted to buy the converts, so they were willing to take a lesser uh, current income. Okay. Converts are now getting back, not all the way there, but getting back to something called a reasonable place. The other area that I think was, in fact, quite attractive, and I understood why people would do it, and to the degree guidelines would allow it in our own fixed income accounts, we would use a couple of the so-called dividend growth stocks if the yield was high enough at the time, and the prospects for the company were more on a steady growth pattern because of what they did and their areas of focus, and not growth stocks, but growth of dividend. And they were doing well relative to bonds, not as well as growth stocks, but they were doing well. Now we're in a new environment. First place, some of those are dealing with a very, very different business outlook. Some are not. But even the ones who are not are looking at this and saying, well, okay, if we're a situation, let's say we serve the public. Let's take AT&T as an example. The dividend growth was minuscule, maybe 1% increase in the dividend each year. But the yield was very high. It was out yielding Verizon by a couple percent. It was out yielding its own debt by a couple percent. And it was creeping slowly up. And they were improving the balance sheet. They were changing the balance between equity and fixed income, building up some equity position, even though they were buying in common stock. So you look at that and you say, well, okay, it's a competitive business. No two ways about it. But now they're, they're more or less an essential service. They'll, they'll take some bruises here and there, but they can certainly maintain that dividend. That's a safe assumption, Right. Well, now let's stop and think about that. Uh, Yes, I think from uh, an economic viewpoint, it is. But what else is going on in the world right now? Let's look at Europe. What's happening to the banks? What's the European Central Bank saying about dividends to common shareholders through this period of time? Oh, dear. What are some of the European banks doing? Well... They're suspending their dividends for the next six months or the balance of the year. Hmm. Okay. Now let's go back and think about our electric utilities and our, our telephone utilities and so forth. Where the demand for the service continues and we serve the public. Is it going to be in everyone's best interest if we increase the dividend? Probably not. Bad PR when people are suffering. In fact, the best PR thing we could do is reduce the charge for what we service, which brings down our revenues, which means the dividend might be a bit in jeopardy. So you have that type of worry. And where you have strictly a commercial company not directly serving the public, but you're selling goods to the public on a regular basis. You're a packaged foods producer, things like that. Are you still, for the time being, a dividend growth? You know, I don't think so. I think it's going to be very hard for companies out there in the public eye. This is going to make a number of, or a few of my own clients upset with me. But I do understand that the public perceptions through a period like this are extremely, extremely important for any business, anyone who has common stock outstanding. And I think you have to take that question and apply it to that whole category of otherwise very attractive equities. So better be sure that you're content with the current yield is, I I think, the best way to go there. Stocks themselves, you know the stock market has, in my experience, I've always reacted from some early on lessons that is, okay, it looks like it's based on the economic outlook going to go down ten, fifteen, twenty percent where we are, and we're already we've taken the beating, we're just about there. I'm gonna start buying um the one time that didn't work very well. Was 1974, where I uh, started buying stocks more aggressively after a real kerwhump in the first half of '74. This led up to the Nixon resignation. And as that built and built and built, stocks were going down and down and down. The economy slowed a little tiny bit, but not much. And so I thought, okay, this is a good time to start buying because. We had cash flows into the market coming from the pension side to corporate defined benefit plans. ERISA had been passed, and we were getting money every single month from clients there, and uh, just about all with mandates that would be, say, 70% equities at the limit and 30% bonds. So we were buying both, and just on a steady basis, knowing that uh, next month,
1: Another amount
2: was coming. So we were steadily buying into this thing. And darn it, stocks kept going down. Bonds kept going down. Clients were getting extremely unhappy. But they were funding the pension. A few clients said, I don't want you to buy anything other than short-term treasuries in our pension, no matter what the guidelines are. And then it stopped. On the first Friday of October of 1974, at 9.39 or somewhere right around there, the market bottomed. And there was a secondary test a few months later, but that was it for the time being. We got to a bear market later on or a sideways market. This time with stocks, I am more cautious because I think the damage being done is hard, and I think that the public perceptions of corporations are going to be tested for a while. I think we'll return all right, but I think it's going to take time. So I am cautious across the board. I think once you get into the honest-to-God, real solid growth stocks, as they become available at a reasonable prices in this. That's another matter. If it's due to technological things over there, and that that also applies in some areas of pharmaceuticals. There, I would go along with that, but I think it's otherwise too early. That's helpful. With
1: my closing question, I wanted to touch on another topic, which I don't think we spent too much time on, which is inflation. Inflation as we know, has been dormant, it seems like, forever, though I think you could well tell us that that hasn't been the case. We're going to have to print money to finance our our recent massive outlays, which will add to already huge deficits. Economic growth, as we've talked about, is likely to remain sluggish, at least in the short term, which is disinflationary. But what happens once a recovery takes hold? Is inflation something that you feel as investors we should be girding for, and, and is that something that you're preparing for at all in the way you're managing
2: money? Uh, mentally, I'm preparing, because I think it is a real risk. Now, you know, there are a lot of counter-arguments. As you look around the world, some countries have been doing this already, and interest rates are not up, and population growth is slowing. It will probably slow a lot now. It will take some time. But once you increase the monetary stock beyond a certain point, uh, getting it tremendously uh, ahead of the growth of the population, even as you're getting economic improvement for the individual members of the population and rising demand for money because of that, nonetheless, you do get to a point, do I think, that in the United States we're going to hit something like uh, the Weimar Republic of the late 20s, early 30s? No, I don't think so. Do I think some other countries without support will get there? Yes. If they try to deal with it just by themselves, that's why they're asking for help. They could otherwise come in and say, hey, listen, uh, we're going to just Print money like mad. That's not a good fallback position, particularly for a smaller country. The real question then becomes, well, that's all well and good, but what about the U.S.? And here I would say that, yeah, inflation is going to come back. At what sort of rate? Don't we have the tools to fight it? Yeah, we do. When we used to be willing to slow the economy again, lean against it, well, I'm not going to lean against the economy because the problem is our total revenues are far short of our expenses. So I want the economy to boom. Okay. Uh, that's understandable. Now, what happens to prices as you do that? Well, no, we can make enough. Uh huh. What about what you pay people to make enough? Well, Is the population growing fast enough? Well, no, it's not. So you start to get into a situation more like what you had in the 50s and 60s. And it creeps, and then at some point it starts to go up faster. I would not anticipate a return to something like the late 70s, at least not in the U.S., But it is so hard to isolate ourselves from the rest of the world. We cannot successfully do it. It's not possible. So what we have to do is our problems aren't just the coronavirus and the reaction in the economies. Our problems have to do with the climate and with the ability to deal with each other on a friendly basis and not have the two major countries in the world, China and the U.S., start lobbing missiles back and forth because that's game over. So that's our setting. And it is a global setting at home. I'm not too worried at this point in time. We'll get to it, whether the bottom is at the end of the second quarter or it's in the third quarter or it's out in the fourth. I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully, It'll be sooner than that. Hopefully we'll be too bearish in our forecast. But that's hope. Right now, reason says no, it's gonna run longer. And we'll just have to see.
1: Well, on that note, we'll conclude this conversation. It's been a, a real privilege to talk to you, Dan. Thank you so much for your time and insights and sharing them with our audience today. We we
2: greatly appreciate it. Well, Jeff, you're you're welcome. And also, thank you, Christine. So thank you both. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you have any other questions or something, you can reach me by my cell phone, except when I'm sleeping.
0: (laughs) 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 Thank you so much. Thank you
1: again so much, Mr. Fuss. Okay. Thanks for joining us on The Long View. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to and rate The Long View for Morningstar on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz.
1: And at s one which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at at thelongviewatmorningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us.
0: This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Batak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal, individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.